Molo Sanbonani, hello house, and welcome to a, another episode of Liberty and Friends, only on the Big Liberty Show. That's right, I'm your favorite fat boy, Big Daddy Liberty. Ah, guys, welcome back to a, another podcast. It's been a week since we last spoke. Uh, you guys, I'm sure, enjoyed last week's conversation with um, Martin from Starden from the Free Market Foundation. As we as we chatted all things freedom-related um, in that podcast and reviewed really some of the more topical issues, um, you know, topical political, economic and social issues through the lens of liberty as liberty advocates. So whether you're a classical liberal, a libertarian or even an anarchist, you would have found resonance with um, essentially the conversation we had um, last week and uh yeah i could see from the comments you guys enjoyed that one remember to always share like and share the content that big daddy liberty puts out because uh that's how we grow an audience and we get these ideas out to more people guys welcome to this week's show i have a special guest for you but before i get to that um i'm gonna have my rant for the week i haven't ranted in quite a while and um there's been quite a few things that have um, made your favorite fat boy um, rather happy uh, this week. As you guys know, I'm an ardent Zionist, a strong supporter for uh, the state of the state of Israel as the home for the Jewish people. As many of you also know, I'm converting to Judaism. So it resonates on a very personal level uh, for me. And um, the big news this week uh, by the time you hear this, it will be last week. Oh, no, excuse me, this week, I'm sorry. Um, is the deal of the century, as um, uh, <laughs> U.S. President Donald Trump put it. And um, he's right in calling it a deal of the century, because it really is. Uh, you know, it's an 80-page document. Um, I'm still going through it, the latter bits of it. Um, but so far, uh, what I've read is absolutely fantastic. Um and any notion that it's a one-sided document, as I've heard some of these uh, BDS shills say, is actually not true. What it really is, is it is a document that sides with act the actual citizens of both uh, so-called Palestine and Israel. Um, you know, it's a document that actually basically recognizes the reality as opposed to what has historically been the case um, with the Middle East uh uh, you know, sort of peace talks, which have all failed. This one actually recognizes a kind of a world that it is, as opposed to pretending, you know, uh, you know, uh, certain metrics that don't exist, and then everybody gets sort of surprised at the end of a futile attempt as to why peace isn't happening. So, what do I mean by this? I'm talking sort of in circles here. Well, um, essentially, and I, we will have an episode. I mean, I, I have in mind a, a good friend of mine, Avi Abelo who lives in Judea and Sumeria. Uh, he's also a big podcaster. I'll have that homie own on the show uh, so for us to talk about this deal in detail. But, um, you know, just a few cursory re remarks at the moment is that this deal basically places power and resources into the hands of the actual citizens and not the uh, historical power brokers. And so far as uh, Hamas and, um, you know, the pa uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and even the Palestinian Authority, to be brutally honest. And it basically... It, it places the onus on citizens um, to, to beg the question, what does a Palestinian state look like? 
is it continuously going to be a case of it being run by the guys who have the biggest guns with the biggest agenda, in this case, a terrorist agenda, which is to annihilate the state of Israel? You know, when people chant, uh, especially these BDS types, when they chant, from the river to the sea, what they're basically saying is um, they want to see the, the, the destruction of Israel. They don't recognize its existence. And you also see this, you know, in more than just chance, physically. When you're firing rockets, when you are launching suicide bombers into uh, 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 Israeli neighborhoods, when you are um, celebrating um, a culture of death and destruction, as uh, the um, uh, the current president of, of, of Palestine, you know, who's serving his 16th year of a four-year term, um, you know, he celebrates death insofar as, you know, uh, naming streets after terrorists and um, paying the families of, you know, these desperate young poor Palestinians who they're convinced to become uh, quote-unquote martyrs, but really terrorists, you know, they're convinced these young and desperate people to kill themselves because they're really, not because, you know, these people necessarily believe in the cause, but because, you know, there's just no other economic opportunities in that part of the world. I mean, the highest poverty levels in that region, and you ask yourself when you look at the other Arab nations, which have grown and prospered and, you know, they've, they've become in some cases a little bit more liberal in, in the societies, but not really, <laughs> don't get me wrong, I'm not saying they're liberal societies, but a lot of the, some of the, the the, the really conservative, old-school, religious um, doctrines are sort of making way for some of these more sort of reforming societies. Saudi Arabia is a, a, a cautious example to use with, you know, the, the crown prince beginning a few reforms here and there. But again, as I said, and it's a big disclaimer, guys, I'm not saying these people are becoming free societies, so please don't think... Uh, that's the takeaway here. The point I'm making is you have these other Arab nations who are kind of saying, ah, it's time to move on. It's time to be progressive, uh, or to, rather it's time to progress as um, nation states and to enjoy the fruits of prosperity and you know whatever that uh, brings for our society, including more middle-class individuals. And the only people in that region who aren't doing this, who are holding on to the past and um, holding on to a victim narrative are the Palestinians. And you could see it in how um, perhaps frustrated some of the Arab other Arab countries were in the outright rejection by the, and predictable, I suppose, of the Palestinians of this deal. Um, and it, it's important for me to lay this out very briefly because, you know, the myth that somehow this is a one-sided deal and no one else um, agrees to it and blah, 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 is simply not true. And you're seeing this in the mainstream media too, where, you know, some of these Washington Post guys, for example, are trying to downplay this deal and essentially suggest that Trump has failed. Whereas I'm of the view, <clears throat> excuse me, um, whereas I'm of the view that actually this deal moves things along quite significantly. I mean, if you can have countries like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, um, and I can name a few Arab countries actually saying, hey, yeah, thumbs up, we, we, we like this deal. It is a good foundation for beginning uh, peace in that region. That, that's a massive, massive step from what was historically the case of these countries literally ganging up um, to try and annihilate Israel. Um, you got to remember this. Israel has always fought defensive wars. It, you know, if, if there's any one of you out there who really wants to buy the BDS line, that somehow Israel, the only democracy in that region really, um, 
is the aggressor or the quote-unquote apartheid state. Um, ask yourself the question, how many Jews live in Arab countries in that part of the world? If you really want to suggest that Israel, the democracy that has a population of 20% Arabs, um, who live with every single right as any other citizen in that country, who have religious freedom, if you want to call that the apartheid state, then ask yourself the question why there are no Jews in Arab countries. If the, so supposedly Israel is the, is the segregating country. But anyway, I digress, I digress. Um, back to the deal. The deal itself is fantastic. I think it is a very strong start. It places power, resources, and actual economic development um, into the hands of a, of a Palestinian population and, of course, Israelis. And it really moves, it moves Palestinians away from, you know, being these donor dependents that we've sort of historically known them to be. And actually says you guys can build an economy, a modern 21st century economy, um, that sees you then um, develop actually develop into a nation state because uh, they, they really have not been a nation state up until now. Um, contrary to any sort of um, misconceptions or even, uh, you know, um, propaganda for, that you actually heard, you know, they've never really been a nation state. They've just been a grouping of individuals um, under the tyranny of various uh, factions and essentially terror groups. So anyway, um, I'm sure you can tell from my voice, my excited um, demeanor. I'm, I'm very, very happy. This is a good start. And I think um, those Palestinians who maybe recognize that this is it, perhaps, um, I, and I don't think there'll be anything after this in real terms, will actually start asking themselves some really hard questions around, are we actually um, represented by these people who supposedly represent us, the likes of your Hamas and um, Islamic Jihad and Fatah and uh, um, the Palestinian Authority? Or do we need to elect a leadership that recognizes the need to move on um, and to actually progress as a people? Because I think once that happens, and <clears throat> as Dennis Prager says, once the, if you, if you really look at that, that part of the world, if, if the Israelis put down their arms for whatever reason, that's it. The next day, that is the annihilation of um, Israel as a state. Because, again, you've had a group of people who self-identify as Palestinians who have stated openly, and again, I want to make a distinction. It's not the people necessarily. It's, it's these groups, Hamas and um, the Palestinian Authority, um, rather uh, Islamic Jihad, etc., etc., who have openly stated and have shown through the actions that they want to annihilate Israel. So if Israel, for whatever reason, were to, as a state, put down its weapons to defend itself, that's it. The Jewish nation is gone. Um, you know, there will be blood on the streets. People will be murdered. But if the Palestinians were to put down their weapons, um, you would actually have peace in that part of the world. It's as simple as that. And we're going to have this conversation, as I said, um, in a later episode, um, as I try and get a homie on here, Avi Abelone, maybe a few other voices like Saragon and Benji Shulman from the South African Zionist Federation for us to have that conversation. And yeah, if you are from BDS um, or any of these other organizations that are terrorist sympathizers, you're very welcome on this podcast. You know, um, BDS is a terrorist sympathizing organization. Hashtag change my mind. So if you really want to have that debate, um, give your favorite fat boy a shout at BDL at... Um, uh, excuse me, BDL at the Big Liberty Show uh, com, and yeah, I will happily have you on the show, and you can try and convince me. Anyway, guys, um, 
I, I really wanted to get that off my chest. Um, my guest is literally sort of giggling away here because you can probably see how um, animated I am. But um, to my guest, he is um, a very interesting character, someone who um, I, I've known of for quite a while because he's quite a prolific writer on um, uh, what was then, oh, excuse me, still is the Rational Standard. And, uh, you know, he's very involved. As I said, I used to follow him quite a lot on, online. Um, you know, his days back in the African Students for Liberty uh, movement, you know, and a, a, a real classical liberal through and through, and someone who I think you should hear a lot from, especially because of his unique experiences. And I'll let him talk about that. But today, uh, today's episode is All Things China. That's right, All Things China, man. As we look at that, that, that behemoth of a country, that powerhouse of a country, culturally, its economy, its politics. Um, and our guest of us obviously has very special insights into that because he spent uh, quite a while there as a semester and he studied the language and blah, blah, blah. But don't hear it from me, hear it from the man himself, Mr. Nicholas Babaya from the Institute of Race Relations. He is a researcher and writer and analyst over there. Nick, hello, hello. Thank you very much, Sichle. It's great to be on the show, and it's great to be talking about my one of my personal favorite topics, which is China, something I've dedicated years of my life to learning about and understanding and learning the language, and I've just had a fantastic time talking about it. And I think it's especially relevant for us as South Africans, you know. I think we see the influence of China more and more. Perhaps 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't quite like it was, but... Um, I'll start off with a, a few things. You know, two two years ago, I was on a big road trip driving throughout Southern Africa. We started in Grahamstown. I used to study at Rhodes, and we drove all the way up through Zimbabwe, Mozambique to Malawi, and then from Malawi through Zambia, down through Botswana. And I remember when we were driving through Mozambique, and you'd like, or actually Malawi, sorry, it was actually the Malawian part of the trip. And you drive through these little villages, people make bricks. It's interesting in Malawi, if you ever see the houses that they make, it's not really sort of the corrugated iron shacks that you see a lot in South Africa. They actually make their own bricks, and you constantly see these little kilns that they make on the side of the road. And they have these little villages, and still, even in these tiny little rural areas, there was the Chinese flag on the side of walls sometimes. <laughs> Why exactly that was, I'm not sure. <laughs> but it showed me truly that this is a behemoth of a country which is having a huge influence in Africa. Hey man, them Chinese don't play, seriously. Um, Nick, <laughs> before we head into this direction, yeah. let, let's talk a little about, about who you are. Who is okay, Nick okay, Babaya? Okay, sure, sure. Let's do uh, that part, where first. are you from? Uh, briefly, you know, w what even got you to Rhodes to, and why did you choose to study what you studied? Yeah, well, uh, so I'll give a brief synopsis of my of my study history. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Cape Town, went to school in Cape Town. I then went to Rhodes University, following in the first footsteps of some of my family members. Uh, and, you know, I, I studied a BA at Rhodes, and I actually chose the subject of Chinese studies quite haphazardly. There's a Confucius Institute at Rhodes. Uh, and I really, during the orientation week at Rhodes, they do this lovely thing where they have these introductory lectures, and I literally had spare time, so I went to go check out Chinese. I'd always loved languages. That's a, a big love of mine. And I chose it, and I actually just absolutely loved the language. I thought it was the most brilliant thing. I highly recommend anybody to learn the Chinese language. It's actually not as hard as you think, really. The reading and writing is by far the most difficult part of it, but the grammar is incredibly simple. 
Um, and then I got to, a couple of opportunities to travel to China and I studied my honors degree last year and for one semester of that I was studying in the city of Guangzhou at Jinan University and that was just a fantastic opportunity. So this is a big passion of mine and now I'm here in South Africa hoping to uh, build a bridge between the two countries but also you know kind of give a I think maybe a more insider's view a more in, uh, sort of more educated perspective on on things going on in the Middle Kingdom. Hmm. Now tell me about um, the experience of because again yeah. I, I raise this because here in the office every now and then you'll hear um, you know the sort of melodic I'm like, um, sorry, I'm sorry. What just, what just happened? And uh, it's Nick talking in Mandarin to or whoever um, on on his phone. Nick, yeah. what prompted you um, to firstly want to learn the language? Um, and to someone who's thinking Mandarin, why should I even learn that? Why? First of all, the, the, the why question is because not many of Chinese people speak English. So I think it's going to be increasingly important. Well, I think you can think of it this way. Purely, if, you, if you're a, what's the word, a utilitarian, it's just a very useful language. If you go there, certainly, if you're looking for a job. What prompted me to learn it really was just actually a love of languages. I know a lot of people will be like, oh, you can get jobs with this. Oh, it's very useful. And that's all true, but actually that's very secondary for me. For me, I just love learning languages and I'm continuing to do so. I also studied German, for example, at Varsity. It didn't go quite as well. But also I think just because of how different it was. You know, I'd had exposure to English Afrikaans and Klasa growing up, but Chinese is totally unrelated to any of those three. The grammar, the writing system was just like, came from a different planet. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was really what kind of sparked my interest. But really what I realized is that as you learn a language, you, you start to learn a lot about the culture, especially in a country like China, which has got a lot of state control. There's been a lot of government influence on the language, and naturally that got me more and more interested in the history of China and uh, what the current situation is now. And which brings me to, which brings me to that, that, that next question. Nick is this young man at university. He then decides, okay, there's a nice opportunity for me to go spend a semester in that part of the world. And I remember that, that period, you know, obviously it was, it was all on your yeah. social media feed. And I remember thinking, hey, Nick, you're going to go to China, dog, you're going to disappear, man. You know, that organ trade is going to have you. I'm going to see, like I had this mental image of you sitting in a bath of like ice. I'm like, hey, man, I was like, if you don't come back, dog, seriously. You sound a bit like I'm a grandpa. I was like, hey man, we're going to send the SWAT team whatever to go get you. I'm, and again, I'm just joking, dear listener. Um, but I, do, I did remember thinking, okay, this is a very bold move and you're going to obviously learn a lot about the people in that part of the world. Now, I'm going to break this down into three areas, really, um, you know, just for the sake of the conversation. And the, the number one area, I suppose I must begin here, is China politically. We had a conversation last week. Yeah. Uh, this week, sorry. Um, and I said to you, Nick, tell me about, and I want you to regale us on here, tell me about China politically. The moment you land, do you get a sense that, um, obviously because we know it's a, it's a communist and inverted commerce country, ne? tell me about what you felt the perception of the state. Is it watching you? Is it 1984 there? Do you feel like the state, some commissar is breathing down your neck? Well, the first feeling that you get that you're in a communist country when you land at the airport there uh, is the fact that you can't log into Facebook because that's blocked. And Twitter's also blocked. So is Gmail, so is YouTube, so is WhatsApp, 
So it's just about every most popular website that we use here. Mm. And there are ways to get around that. And it's, it's, it's you know, that we can talk about the internet censorship just now. But I mean, I think that was the, that's the first sort of feeling you get is you like, okay, that's kind of off limits. Yeah. I'd say the second thing just about the environment is that if you're ever in a big Chinese city, you'll notice how many cameras. And there are cameras just about everywhere. And I mean, quite literally, the only place where you truly are not being watched or, or could be seen, let's say. I don't think they have people monitoring all the cameras 24-7. Uh, is probably inside your the place where you live and probably more likely just inside your bathroom. Mm. Um, <laughs> whenever I was getting changed, I made sure it was in my bathroom because I wasn't trusting them. Um, so, yeah, the, the whole feel of the country, I think, was extremely difficult for me. And also one big difference, you must remember, in this country, since the time I was little, I used to watch the news with my mom every night at 7 o'clock. And there was always criticisms of the government, even from the ANC. That sort of, and oh, and politics in general is just a big topic of conversation in mm. South Africa. We're always talking about what's right, what's wrong. Whereas that's actually a very taboo topic in China. Mm. I would compare it almost analogous to how talking about like sexual topics are very taboo in South Africa. It's something which you kind of avoid. And I've had a few political conversations with people, but they've always been in like very hushed tones. Mm. And people were like careful what they say and they use a bit of code language. So I'd say those are the two things that um, you sort of have to watch out for. Mm. I also just knew that, and, and people live their lives like this. It's just easier not to rock the boat. Mm. Whereas we love rocking the boat. Mm. You know, UKZN students, I just saw on the news earlier today, burnt down a residence. Yeah, man, they burnt their boat down. So they um, <laughs> burned their boats down <laughs> in this country. You see, but Nick, you're opening up a nice topic here. For me, at least, because yeah. um, if you look at the country politically, it's obviously a one-party state, communist in that regard. Um, and at the helm of the of this party is a one Xi Jinping, um, yeah. uh, aka Winnie the Pooh. Just kidding, Mr. <laughs> Jinping. Um, tell us about this guy's character. Is he? Do, do you feel like he is a presence? Um, in the country, almost like, for example, how we used to see Mao, you know, in these big effigies and, and the, um, you know, these big murals of him. Is he something like that? Or is he sort of like a oh, night dog, I work behind the scenes type guy? You, you know, that kind of thing, that sort of cult of personality is thankfully one of the things which they've done away with, I think. There's, he's obviously a huge character and you do see him a lot and there's enormous respect. And the current, current Communist Party has adopted what they call Xi Jinping thought as part of their, and they always do this, like when Deng Xiaoping was the leader, he, there was Deng Xiaoping thought and Mao Zedong theory, and they always adopt this. So there is an element to which the, the leader is a bit charismatic and like, and, and, and uh, you know, obviously the main difference between a country like China, a country like South Africa, is just no, you never hear anybody really criticize him. Well, I have, but it was like inside a car when no one can, can hear. We can, talk, we can talk about that just now, by the way. Um, politically speaking, she is also a very interesting president because, and perhaps Sichle, hmm, I might segue into a bit of Chinese history here, but to cut no, along. No, why not? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, to, to, okay, well, we'll just cut a long story short. Basically, the People's Republic of China, governed by the Communist Party, or the Chinese Communist Party, was established in 1949. And the first president was Mao Zedong. And a whole bunch of stuff happened, which we can talk about just now, because that deserves its own little <laughs> time mm. to, to break down. But basically in the year 1987, I believe, I might be getting a date wrong, a different guy came to power called Deng Xiaoping, and he was this major reformer, where Mao was like a Soviet Union-style, sort of quite similar to Stalin, 
um, Deng Xiaoping sort of recognized that that was an enormous failure and there mm. was a huge need to reform. And he sort of brought out this cabal of reformers in the Chinese mm. Communist Party. And one of the things that they sort of did away with was that whole sort of cult of personality. But that also led to market reforms, property rights, uh, reforms in agriculture. And that was really the start of sort of the China that we see today. And that really developed in the 1990s and the sort of 2000s. And that's why uh, an interesting, very pivotal event, I think, in Chinese history that people might not realize is the 2008 Beijing Olympics. This was sort of one of the first time in times in which the whole world had their eyes on China. And in 2008, China was quite different to what it is today. You know, mm. The speed at which they were developing is just so incredibly fast. So... You know, since that start, Deng Xiaoping, they've become much more of a basically like a mixed market economy. And we can talk about the economics just now. But she is interesting in that many people feel like he is one of the more authoritarian figures who has come. And that's been reflected in, I think, a lot of social policy, a lot of policy towards minorities, uh, which we can also talk about. Sorry, each of these things deserve their own little conversation because it's really, really deep. But in, in general... A lot of people, certainly Western commentators, see Xi as a, as a, a bit more of an authoritarian figure. And mm. probably one of the biggest moments for that was at the party conference, I think it was two years ago, when they, they resolved to remove term limits for him. Mm. This made a lot of Chinese people um, quite suspicious and quite nervous that one of the terms that they banned on the Chinese social media Weibo was disagree. They, huh. they, they very commonly ban various words and they're all topical and they've got people employed to do so. <laughs> Um, I remember having an interesting conversation in a car with a family. I was in a city called Changsha. And they asked me this question. It's like a mom and a pop and a little daughter. They said, so Nick, what do you think of the president? And I was like, okay, you have to approach this topic with a bit of caution. And I said, yeah, look, you know, it's not my country. I don't really want to really give my opinion. And he said, no, 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 no. I know what you're saying. It's fine. You're in a private space here. So you can speak your mind. And so I just said, yeah, actually, I'm quite nervous about removing term limits. And he mm. said, yeah, we are also. Mm. So that was that was quite interesting. So. But, you know, you're raising an issue which I think for for us in, in the, well, Western world, if I can call it that, we have very poor conception of it. In other words, a, an individual having seemingly that much power to be able to, to mobilize an entire political party and say no, my terms or or nothing because he doesn't look that way i mean if you look at this guy he looks like a friendly you know he's always like got the cute little smile like hey i'm i'm the nicest guy ever but you know um you'd never think that this is the kind of power guy who would be ruthless enough to convince essentially a whole throng of party members to remove um term limits because that for i think your hunch that is let me be precise and and, and concise here yeah i think your, your hunch about that being a warning bell of sorts is a is a good one, but now reconcile that 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 power broker that that powerful individual with this friendly sort of almost even gregarious looking character. How do people perceive him in public? Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that. What are the sort of nicknames they have for the president? Uh, is Xi Dada, which is like Uncle Xi. So there is that sort of image of him in public. And he mm. is, I think when you when you look at him in interviews, he is like this kind of smiling, big friendly sort of guy. And mm. that is in contrast with, for example, Jiang Zemin, who was mm-hmm. a much more like, Jiang Zemin is a highly, highly respected figure among all my Chinese friends quite like Jiang Zemin. He was a, he was a, the leader of China sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And he was like a much more serious, like much, he would deal with journalists quite harshly. And <laughs> 
So I think they, they do have that sort of vibe about him. But Sikha, one thing I'd like to stress here, because we're talking a lot about him, you must remember that for your average Chinese person, politics is just not really something that they worry about. Mm. Politics, is, life just is generally all right. And if life is all right, you just sort of go about your day and what the president's doing is, you know, you might see it on the news or stuff like that, but it's not like us where we constantly worry about what the ANC's doing here, what's Roma Porsa doing, what was, how many houses has Zuma bought. Mm. It's, it's like, a, that was almost the biggest difference societally is that that's just like not one of the topics that you talk about around the dinner table. And some people certainly do, but because of the problems that can come with it, it's a, it's a largely... I, would, I don't know if I can say apolitical, mm. but I think we here in South Africa and in a lot of countries are just very political to mm, begin mm, with. Mm. And that's obviously a, partly a result of our history. But yeah, you know, that's, that's the thing. Because if everybody agrees, there's nothing to argue about mm. if you think about it. Well, as before we move from away from the, the po- political side of this, this, um, this conversation, I want us to look at some of the controversial um, aspects of the Chinese government and its political decisions. Now, when you say this, you, you know, you have to bring up the issue of Tibet. You have to bring up the issue of the... Um, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Yes, uh, you know, like how do citizens... I don't know if you've ever broached this topic with citizens, but how do they view that? Um, this is very interesting because yeah. I have asked... So, okay, so I lived in a city called Guangzhou. That's in the south of China. It's quite close to Hong Kong, very far away from these places, Tibet and Xinjiang. And now this is obviously a big news story in Western media. And I would often ask my friends who are locals of that kind of area, do you know what's going on, for example, in Xinjiang? And they're like, have, like no, what are they doing, Nick? Like, we have no idea. Mm. They're, they're like, they, 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 they thought it was such a bizarre question to ask. They just thought that Xinjiang was just kind of like any other place. I mean, they know... You know, a few things that have happened in the past which have caused the current situation there, and it's also very interesting to look into that because China has also had a problem of of, um, um, uh, Islamic fundamentalism there. Uh, There was a terrible, terrible uh, terrorist attack in 2014. There was a very interesting, I don't know if you ever heard of, there was a plane hijacking um, uh, from a a flight from one city in Xinjiang to the other by some of these sort of terrorists and that people on the plane actually managed to beat, like, overpower the terrorists and land the plane safely. I still find that one of the most incredible stories I've read about a plane hijacking. That's really amazing. It's intense. Yeah. They took off from a city called Hotan in Mandarin. It's Hotian. I don't know how it will be spelt. But, yeah, you must read about that. Very interesting. Mm. So, yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you ask about these things, we here have got the view that these are, like, very troubled, sort of controversial places. But whenever I asked my Chinese friends, there was, like, no kind of awareness. But the exception to that was people who I t- spoke to who lived in Xinjiang. Mm. And I had a couple of friends. And I said, like, do you know what's going on? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. everybody knows what's going on. Mm. And that's the end of it. You don't really go more into that. So that's the kind of, th- that's sort of the extent to which people, you know, understand the situation. Mm. At least that's how I felt. Okay. Um, interesting. There's, there's a clearly a common theme coming up here um, and, and I think it ties into who controls the information that's exactly um, it and I, th- I think that's such a big factor because you think about how much the internet is censored in that country mm. you think about their education system they've been taught this since day one mm. it's also things like Taiwan which is an interesting topic in and of itself I don't know if you're very familiar about that mm. um, but, but yeah that is exactly it and I think I learned there the power 
of who controls the information mm. and how much how much uh, influence you can really have when people have got one news source mm. or when all the news sources agree with each other. You know, there's no private newspapers mm, in China. Mm, mm. Um, mm. As I said, the, the, the last area I wanted to look at in terms of some of the political strife yeah. and the more topical one, I suppose, right now would be, you know, Hong Kong. Um, yeah, Hong Kong is an interesting situation. Surely there must be some sort of, you know... Uh, I mean, if you live on the mainland, what, firstly, what do you know about what's happening in, in Hong Kong? So basically, if you live on the mainland, you know that there's a bunch of rioters in Hong Kong who, who want Hong Kong independence. And that's, that's not really, I mean, part, that's partially true. That's true. But, but if you, the best way to go see what do mainland Chinese view about these things, I encourage people to go follow on social media the Chinese state-run media accounts. Not because they're particularly good journalism. I actually don't really think they are. <laughs> um, but because you see exactly how the Chinese government wants you to see things. Mm. And then you get an idea of what they're going on. So Hong Kong is, yeah, so there's extreme negativity towards the Hong Kong protesters mm. uh, in, in the mainland of China. And the interesting thing is that, the, you know, there's a lot of tourism from the mainland to Hong Kong because it's like a really cheap place to go shopping. Mm. It's very famous for its cuisine. Um, and actually, like a lot of Hong Kong protesters were specifically going to the places where a lot of mainland Chinese like to go, to yeah. go shopping or whatever. So there was a big campaign kind of from them to try and make this thing. But the interesting thing, Sikhia, was I was in China when that protest started, and there was absolutely no media coverage about it for at least the first month. Wow. It was only when enough people started to know and they started communicating to each other that a huge negative campaign started. So that to me was a little bit interesting to observe. Now, Nick, we, we began this segment by almost... Ex um, uh, excuse me. You began the segment by almost exploring how you felt when you first landed in China. Yeah. Um, and that sense of, you know, the state is there. Um, both in terms of, you know, what, what you suggested, where cameras are everywhere, you know, obviously a, likely a, a big police uh, presence. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to me, though, about... Um, how, so, f for us in the West, so to speak, you know, we, there's always like these short Vox Pop documentaries that will pop up um, on social media about, you know, China and um, it's repressive, not repressive, but uh, the security state. Um, for example, the big thing that, that, that popped up was that whole social capital, so social credit, credit yeah. social credit system. Um, you know, the idea that the state uh, literally follows every aspect of your life. If you, uh, you mentioned when we were having a chat, if, if you have a debt, yeah. they can, they can, you know, cut you out of the public transport system until you pay it off and blah, blah, blah. What's going on there? What's up with that? Yeah, you know, that's... See, I don't know too much about that, but the, odd, <clears throat> but the reason I don't know too much about that is... How can I explain this? That kind of thing would not really come as a surprise. So, a lot of Chinese people have a very consequentialist view... No, that's not the right word. What's the word? You could say perhaps utilitarian, I'm not quite sure what it is, but they view safety as a high, high priority. And whenever freedoms get taken away, they don't have the sort of, you know, um, Adam Smith or uh, what's that, um, John Stuart Mill or John Locke uh, foundation of classical liberalism that we have because we've read all these great documents. Their sort of view on the world is that if it makes us safer, that's really priority number one. And so there's very little sort of pushback from these things. Also, remember, this doesn't really matter if you don't do anything wrong. So it, it just further incentivizes just kind of following the rules. And 
it's reported in the West as being this like horrible thing, this sort of Orwellian system, which is not too far off from the truth. Mm. But for your average Joe in China, I mean, if it doesn't affect you, then it, it doesn't really matter. You just kind of, it, it just means you follow the rules and go about with life. Now, there's been some interesting cases, like for example, there's a Chinese MMA fighter. I don't know if you've ever watched the UFC. I'm a big MMA fan. This guy doesn't <laughs> fight for them, but his name is Xu Xiaodong. And he was actually like commenting a little bit about the Hong Kong protests. And I think he said one or two things maybe in favor of them. And he got nailed by the social credit system. He couldn't buy a plane ticket. Um, <laughs> so you find interesting things like that. And, and to me, that's kind of what sends a few chills down my spine. And that's what sends the message to me. Like when I'm in China, okay, you just don't talk about political stuff while you're here. You go, you have some nice food and you have to talk to your friends and you go home. Yeah, dude. But, but like what I'd like to emphasize once, once more Cecilia, is, you know, this is a problem for a small minority of people. But because of, for the vast majority of people just kind of follow the rules and go about their daily lives and actually have a pretty good life, it's not that controversial in China. Yeah. And it's also sort of expected because it's the way things are, are, are done there. We're talking about a lot of negative stuff, but like it's, uh, what, what I'm trying to give you right now is like, it's like an insider account of, of kind of how things are there, you know. Well, we'll get there. We'll get to some of the positive <laughs> stuff. And I think mm-hmm. culturally, I, I've always also always assumed that that's the way a lot of the... Um, the good stuff about China comes up because it is really a culturally um, rich nation. But yeah, absolutely. So we, we go back to Nick. He's now just landed in, in um, China. He's found his accommodation. I remember you sent that one pic. Here's the benefit of a photographic memory. You're like on the 40th floor or something crazy like that. Yeah, uh, and I think. all I could see out of the grey sort of skyline was just other sky-rise buildings. And I was like, yeah, How's this a um, a model of, of, of development? Talk to me about that experience, moving into a Chinese neighborhood. What, what, were, what were the highlights, lowlights, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so I, because I was at a university, um, a, a big majority of Chinese university students stay at residence. It's not like South Africa where you'll kind of stay in first year, maybe second year, and then by then a vast majority of people kind of move out. The problem is that rent prices are so high in a lot of big cities that uh, it's just much cheaper to stay at university residence. So that's interesting. So the other thing about China is that, um, you know, everybody kind of lives in an apartment with a few exceptions. If you go to the more rural areas, then there's a bit more space. But even in those kind of areas, you still see a big emphasis on building up because there's not that much space. So there's a huge number of people living in a, in a relatively small space. A city like Johannesburg in China, you know, you wouldn't have these nice leafy green suburbs that we kind of have. You just have a lot of high-rise apartment buildings. And likewise, the bottom level of all those buildings would be a lot of restaurants. Now, that was actually quite nice because, for example, if I want to go get food here, I have to get in my car, drive five kilometers to the grocery shop or to a restaurant or something, and then drive home. Whereas in China, everything was like kind of walking distance. So I kind of enjoyed that. Um, but also, you know, for example, a lot of South African university students are actually very well off. Um, I had my own room when I was at Rhodes. In China, you can get your own room, but what's more common is actually to share a room with two, three, sometimes like five other people. So you might have six people in one room. I knew some Chinese uh, friends of mine were in that situation. But it's actually very cheap, and, 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 and that's why, especially in a big city like Guangzhou. So that's, that's kind of how living, I would say, it differs a lot. Is you, you, uh, and, and you take public transport, of course. Fewer people own cars. Um, uh, and yeah, and that, that's also something where I learned to appreciate South Africa. We really do have a lot of space here and a lot of personal space, and that's a great thing. You know, you, you paint this picture, which is maybe a little gloomy then, because 
Okay. It's not so gloomy when you're there. Hang you on, know? hang on. Yeah. So, you... Okay. So, is it is it a function of Chinese people being poor and things being expensive? Or, like, I'm trying to understand yeah. why... Why this is. Yeah, and why well, things would be expensive. Well, okay, now what's expensive is property because that's a supply and demand issue because there are just so many people in these cities that obviously you have huge demand and that drives up the prices. And they've tried to introduce controls, like, for example, they started to crack down on people uh, like speculating because that was also uh, um, increasing the property prices. But that's kind of why people live in these relatively small spaces. And it also depends where you are. If you're in a very big city like Shanghai, Beijing or Shenzhen, um, I can't remember. See, this is funny, Cicely. They don't talk about politics, but one of the common topics around the dinner table is like, what's the price per square meter for an apartment in this area? <laughs> I got so bored by this, but they were like going on and on about this. It was like the local gossip. <laughs> but it's worth going down this path because I think things are relative, but like, so how much would, like, how much should I expect to pay for an apartment? If I, um, if I were to move to... For rent? Yes. Well, okay. So, I mean, I didn't... I stayed at a relatively cheap accommodation because I was at university. I mean, I think you might be paying, like, more than sort of 10,000 rand a month for, like, a fairly small apartment sharing with, like, maybe three other people. Wow, sharing. Like, yeah, yeah. Maybe a little bit less than that. Maybe about eight or 9,000. And, and that's... I mean, that's what I've just said to you now is just what I know some of my friends had. Mm. And that is, it's quite pricey. I suppose it kind of gets balanced out because that is your, by far your biggest expense. Um, you know, transport's pretty cheap. Food is much cheaper, mm. although food can vary. Um, so yeah, rent is, is a huge thing. And especially in a place like Hong Kong. Hong Kong has got the most unaffordable property market in the world. Mm. So much to the extent that, like, people these days, if you just graduate from varsity now in Hong Kong, it might take you, like, 10 years of saving up to actually buy. So, yeah, property prices are, 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 a, bi- are a big thing there, whereas we might worry about something else, yes. like our property getting taken. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, okay, back to, back to some of the more serious stuff. Yeah. Um, so you're at this university campus, and remember I asked you a question about the culture at university campuses, uh, yeah. in contrast to South African universities. So here we have the fees must fall list types, the social justice warrior types, these identitarian types um, who who see themselves as the counterculture, which ironically they're not, because this is what they're taught at university, but anyway. <laughs> um, and they see themselves as the ones who need to rage against the machine um, and take on the Which, state. by the way, is also a very good band, Rage Against the Machine. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, turn that, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, talk to me about the Chinese student. Is he that militant, um, you know, sort of Keda, comrade type? Okay, obviously not that type, but um, is he this militant, anti-the-state establishment, um, you know, we, we form societies that, that criticize the state or, or like, what was it like for you to be on a campus? Well, this is the interesting thing. So I think the culture among sort of university age people in China is, is quite fascinating because this is, they're probably the first generation of people in their families who have lived, maybe first or second generation who have lived actually like a pretty nice middle-class life. And because of that, you see some of the sort of, um, shall I say, I hate to, I don't want to sound bad, but like shallowness 
that maybe we've kind of grown out of here in this country and, and in a lot of Western countries. So the first of all, with regards to activism on campus, I saw nothing like that. Um, you know, it's just, like I said, politics is a very taboo topic and there's none of the sort of political activism. Um, in South Africa, I, get, I often get the feeling that university students are such big p- political activists because university is an interesting time. You have all the freedom that an adult has, but you have all the responsibility of a child. So this makes you sort of, I think that lack of responsibility makes people want to try and change the world. And that's why they get involved in political activism and do things like this. In China, you know, you just got to be kind of a good student, generally speaking. And, and, and people care a lot about, let's say, what others think about them. They care a lot about their appearance. I found this especially among young Chinese uh, women, uh, sort of uh, late teens, early 20s. And there's, a, 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 I think, a very materialistic kind of culture among, among that age of, of person in China, something I found quite bizarre sometimes. Mm-hmm. For example, I'll give you a brief example. Um, whenever people take photos of themselves and upload it to social media, you know, in South Africa, we might take a photo, I don't know, if there's, it's Instagram, you might add a filter and then upload it. Whereas in China, yes, man, they spend like like a couple minutes like making your skin lighter and like making sometimes changing changing the shape of your face um and like just editing this picture photoshopping it to make you look so good so i always i always laughed when i would add these people on wechat and i would see in their photos on wechat look nothing like they did but there's like a huge huge worry about kind of like what other people think about you so i would say that's like maybe a big difference there's mm. there's none of the politics side but there's a lot of this sort of uh, materialism and I think that's as a result of like a new new money almost mm. you know what I'm saying which brings me to the next and perhaps the final se- segment um, the economy of China obviously this is, is a former collectivist closed off economy socialist or slash communist economy um, and from the 70s onwards really those reforms started kicking in and through the 90s it's a great boon of investment, but what does that really meant in real terms for the, 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 the Chinese people? Like, talk to me about the economy then. I'll, I'll, I'll pepper you with some questions. Okay, sure. Well, I mean, so basically, the brief history of the Chinese economy is that it was a socialist command economy during Mao Zedong, the late the sort of 60s or 50s and 60s, and that was pretty disastrous. They went through some horrible famines uh, in which millions and millions of people died. And after after that, a guy called Deng Xiaoping came to power, and he was this great reformer that I talked about earlier. And basically, his reforms uh, to a more market-based economy, in fact, not a more, like a very market-based economy, uh, continued uh, in the the 80s and the 90s. And I think things really started running away in the 2000s. And if you look sort of from the mid-90s to kind of – mid to late 2010s china has had uh, economic growth rates of something like 10 percent you know it's up in uh, up in those regions uh, now things are slowing down just because of the trade war which is also significant but this sort of rapid growth has brought millions and millions of chinese people out of poverty so that has been a, a, a huge change now a couple of interesting things about the chinese economy i think is that it's actually a lot freer than the south african economy in certain regards one of those is, for example, there's far fewer rights for workers there. Um, I always would love to bring this up with sort of some militant socialist who praises China here. I'm like, you want to be like China? For fine, let's get rid of trade unions. I don't know that trade unions exist in China. I've never heard of them. I never heard of a strike there. Generally speaking, it's a country where there's so much competitiveness that hard work is, is, a, is a real, not just a, a thing that exists, but it's actually like a virtue. 
Um, and so you'll find shops and, and general businesses open for very, very long hours. You'll find um, just a, a much bigger variety of businesses open in China. You'll, you, you'll have so many different kinds of like a restaurant or a clothing shop or something like that. And they'll be opening and closing a lot. And then there's also aspects which I quite enjoyed. For example, I think South Africa's laws regarding the sale of alcohol are really draconian. Mm. I love having a beer just casually. I, I'm not a big drinker, but I like having a beer. And in China, I could go buy a beer from the 7-Eleven at 1 a.m. And that's like something which I think the Minister of Health in this country would have a heart attack about if he, if he gave South Africans the right to buy a beer at 1 a.m. I think that keeps him up at night. What a crap. So, yeah, so there's, so there's like silly little, silly little laws that we have in South Africa. We, maybe we don't think about them so much. But mm. to me, that's just as much of an infringement of my personal freedom mm. as if they were to cut off my free speech. So I quite enjoyed the sort of more laissez-faireness about things like when it came to food and drinks and there's sort of less control. Talk to me about um, what would it mean to be a Chinese middle-class family? Like what, what are you earning? Where do you live? Uh, where do your kids go to school? Is, are there private schools in China? Yeah, there um, are, but generally those are reserved for foreigners. Okay. So you actually, uh, there's actually, I'll, I'll briefly just say, there's a funny phenomena though of the very, very rich Chinese people will go and get a passport for their children from some other country. Wow. And like some random place. There's, I don't know if you know, but there's a few countries where you can actually buy citizenship. Like I think Monaco, if you pay enough money, invest enough money, you can buy citizenship. Bahamas as well. And they might go and send their children to a private school. Um, but that's that's the vast exception. I, d I don't know. I can't give you numbers, but generally speaking, a, a sort of middle class Chinese family lives a, lives in an apartment, usually a little way away from the center of the city, because that tends to be the most expensive properties. And the further you go out, the sort of more affordable things become. Mm. They've got two children now that they've got the two child policy, uh, and hopefully that they hope that they're boys. Um, after their children, their children go to a government school, and then at the and sort of at the end of the government schooling, they take this exam, kind of like our national senior certificate. But for them, it's actually a university entrance exam called the Gaokao. And the children in China basically spend their whole lives preparing for this exam, and the sort of stress that they go through oh. is unbelievable. It really is the most draconian kind of exam that just the, the, the pressure that gets put on them is just enormous so that's kind of i think chinese children have a really rough life i must say i'm very happy i went to school here um and then after that if they're lucky they they, they go to a good university you go to a university based on how, how good your marks are so you apply and if you if you're extremely good then you can go to a top university otherwise you, you go according to where you get accepted and then generally speaking i think um you know if you live inside a city it's, it's common for families not to own a car they, you can pretty much just take transport everywhere and if you want to go on holiday you go to thailand what <laughs> yeah so one of the funniest things for me is i would always ask my chinese friends have you ever been to another <laughs> country and the answer was inevitably yes thailand <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> They love Thailand, man. Um, Nick, you know, I, something that's not quite squaring up here, yeah. and I want us to chat about it very briefly in the sort of last five minutes or so that we have. Um, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I always do this on my podcast. Yeah, of course. I play the lefty, and I want you to, to rebut the arguments I make. Sure. So I'll play the hypothetical socialist. No, Nick, you're wrong. You, this picture you're painting of China is absolutely wrong. It's not a surveillance state. It is 
Um, it, in fact, it's too it's too capitalist, Nick. Um, what China really needs, um, if if it were to lift more people out of poverty and into a middle class, is more socialism. It needs the government to control the commanding heights of the economy fully, um, so that that government becomes the sole agency that redistributes the wealth. Because what's happening now, Nick, uh, as as the question is, all this wealth is going to the big cities like Shanghai and Hong Kong. Look at how they look. But if you go to some of the more um, uh, rural areas, people live in absolute squalor, don't they, Nick? Well, it certainly is true that the main rich-poor divide is between urban and rural in China. And you're right in saying that all those big cities are the certainly the most wealthy places and the places where you can make the most money. Um, I have been to some of the more rural areas of China. I actually found them very beautiful, to be quite honest. Um, I'm trying to think how to argue against you because a lot of the things you've said have been tried in China already. This is the odd thing. Is, is your, a Chinese person wouldn't agree with you because they'd said, yeah, well, we tried that and literally millions of people starved to death. No, no, but hang on. <laughs> no, remember I'm a socialist. And that wasn't real socialism. No, that wasn't real socialism. Okay, what, that, what part of that do you object to? Well, um, the part where um, there wasn't enough redistribution because remember now um, the, the political elites started like corrupting the system and they weren't redistributing uh, the wealth. But what I'm saying is right now, because I'm a dumb socialist, anyway, sorry, uh, back in character. Um, so what I'm saying as a socialist is you need sheeping because it's removed term limits to now be the decider of where the redistribution goes. So you can take wealth away from Hong Kong and put it into the rural areas, can't you, Nick? Well, so there's sort of two parts to that. The second part, oddly enough, is actually, uh, I'm sure a lot of Chinese people would kind of agree, they believe in sort of strong leadership. So, so sometimes, you know, I think a lot of Chinese people, when I say to them, but don't you, aren't you upset that you like don't have another choice for a party? Uh, they're like, no, well, look how great the city is run, you know, we, we can't complain, it's life's good. And uh, there is certainly a lot of uh, development going into the rural areas. China is very intent on, on making them wealthier and making people more mobile, economically mobile. But if you think that what China needs is more redistribution and the problem that what happened in the 1950s and 60s was corruption by the elites, well, then I'd like to ask you sort of what part of the, the various campaigns put forward by Mao Zedong where he told people to go plant double the number of seeds and twice the, in, in, in half of the agricultural area and then give all the grain to the government office and then no food was redistributed back. What part of that do you object to, which caused millions of people to starve? What part of all the people sort of taking their home appliances, pots and pans and trying to turn them into steel which was part of a campaign for China to sort of catch up in the industrial revolution and really just created massive shortages in, in these sort of resources, while at the same time that China kept paying grain payments to the Soviet Union while it's people, I, I don't know, like it's, I suppose all I would say to you, Cecilia, the devil's advocate, is I'm just not really sure what you're saying because it sounds like you're talking total nonsense. And I think the average Chinese person would agree with me. Well, okay, fine. Um, you might call it nonsense, but I call it uh, progressive ideology because, um, oh wow, I can't even think like these people. Um, <laughs> by the way, China is the most conservative country I've been to in my entire life, mm. without a doubt. Tell me more. So, okay, this is quite interesting. So, you know, the, the lefties in the West are economically socialist and they couple that with a sort of high and mighty social justice kind of sense. 
But what I always wonder is that they seem to sort of be not really paying attention. Like they're, they're very happy to criticize America when it, the state of Alabama bans abortion after a certain amount of time. But this, uh, or, or for example, um, a, a pizza restaurant in America refuses to, or, or, or a bakery in Wisconsin refuses to uh, make a keg for a gay wedding because it, viola- it violates his religious conscience. Uh, but yet, they are, you know, Taiwan became literally the first place in Asia last year to legally recognize gay marriage. Literally the first place in Asia. So it's a very, very conservative society around there. Um, and very, like, conservative Confucian, actually, roles of, of gender in society. I had a few, like, weird questions. Like, this one guy asked me, how would you feel like if a gay guy lived in the same apartment with you? Would you would you be scared? Like, would you think that he's going after? Like, I had these questions, which if they were asked in any sort of progressive South African environment, they would be um, shut down. And yeah, so the, the, it's a very conservative country, China, and that's also part of like the sort of philosophical history of China, which is for a different day, I suppose. But. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one that I found out as well. Big, <laughs> big, big change. Um. Nick, we, we must wrap it up. We must okay. wrap it up. Um, I, I did want this chat to be a bit more candid. Um, that's why I didn't go to issues like coronavirus and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, I just <laughs> wanted to set out um, that we, you know, we're going to be having a lot more of these chats going forward, especially as we, um, I'm going to be using you uh, quite a lot in terms of being a reference to all things China on the more current affairs-y type issues because I think what my show will be ever increasingly is maybe an opening current affairs segment then a major interview and, you know, just something at the end. So um, let me thank you for joining me in this uh, uh, second episode of 2020 of Liberty and Friends. Um, Homie, how do we find you online? Punch your social media. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Nick Babaya. Uh, if you're interested, you can follow my good friends at the Rational Standard at Rational Stand. Uh, and uh, that's uh, all I'm interested in sharing with the listeners. But those two should be enough. I tweet, I tweet on a regular basis. Absolutely. And of course, you can find Nick, uh, or you will find Nick ever increasingly on The Daily Friend. That's dailyfriend.co.za, where he'll be writing uh, and contributing to uh, that site. Uh, once again, a big thank you to Nick Babaya, who is, of course, from the Institute of Race Relations. He is a writer and analyst at in that part of the world. And um, yeah, as I said... Nick, you know, we, we were just having a candid chat, but Nick can go very, very deep on the issues of China. And, yeah, you probably heard it in the conversation. There's, there's various offshoots of conversation that we'll probably pick up in, in other conversations as we look to more sort of global topics. Um, Nick will always contribute to the, the China thing. Nick, you are saying? No, well, well, I just thought, you know, one, one of these days, what we should do is we should take literally just one issue going on in China and we can talk about that the whole time because I think I've got a fairly good uh, historical background for some of these things happening in places like Hong Kong and Xinjiang. These are, it's very important. What I, I'll just end off on this point. If you were to try to understand South African politics right now without having any idea of South Africa's history in the 20th century, you wouldn't know what was going on. And I think that's exactly the same case for China. So I'd like to make more people aware of that. And one of these days we should, we, should, we should have a chat again about that kind of thing. I think it would you know, enlighten people. Absolutely, fully agreed. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on this show. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to this show of Liberty and Friends. Uh, guys, remember, 
if you listen to the show, please share it on your social media. Let's grow the audience, especially as I look to having this show syndicated on community radio stations across the country. We need to start getting these ideas of being uh, liberty advocates, loving freedom into communities across this country, especially if we're going to change this country. Guys, I really appreciate every single one of you who are financial supporters of the Institute of Race Relations by becoming a friend of the IRR. Remember, you can do that by SMSing your name to 32823. SMS will cost you one rand, terms and conditions to apply. And yeah, you donate 90 rands a month and it is those funds that we use to get the content out to you guys. And of course, to provide wonderful platforms like The Big Liberty Show and uh, The Daily uh, Friend. Guys, thank you so much for listening. And remember, never trust a commie.